Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Morning. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Nick Remesong, along with my co-host, Chris Wolf. Joining us this week from our radio roundtable regulars, we have a higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, our representative, Jeff Roy. Well, let's start right away. We've got, uh, we've got a, a bit to cover today, I think. Uh, I'm going to just give you a short bit of an intro here from USA Today on Monday, referring to the previous weekend, which was, of course, uh, this uh, this week's President's Day weekend. The headline was three days, 10 mass shootings, more than 50 victims. U.S. sees worst weekend of 2023, probably close to being one of the worst weekends ever. And what we would like to touch on today is the aspect of how much, if any, impact does the question of mental health come in on this? Is there a need to be much more vigilant in our issuing of firearms licensing, sale of firearms, distribution of firearms, and what is exactly the nature of whatever touch there is by mental health issues on this gun issue. Also, we might, if we've got a little extra time, we might want to touch on another mental health issue, and that is uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's call for a national divorce of the red and blue states. How valid is that? Nick, uh, can, can who'd I like to start us? Yeah, this is Natalia. You know, as a, as a public health person, I think about mm. mental health a lot. And I want to start off by saying that I'm a little troubled by linking the gun conversation with mental health, because we know from the literature and public health that people living with mental illness are much more likely to be victims of violence. They're much, much more likely. So yes, we need to have this conversation. And yes, there will be uh, people with a mental illness who perpetrate horrendous crimes, but they're in the minority. So I want to start us off by being very clear that this isn't simply about you know mentally ill people. Um, it is really a gun issue. And I want mm -hmm. us to make sure mm -hmm. we're clear at the beginning, because the fact that the United States has more gun shootings than any other country is not explained by us having like more mentally ill people than any other country. It's simply explained by the fact that we have more guns than any other country. So fundamentally, let's be clear that that, and then in addition to that, let's start thinking about the other stressors. And I don't want to deny that COVID has led to real distress, that the isolation that we have felt that the challenges that we have felt, and if we are going to have guns, we should think about who should have access to them. So starting us off with that, just so that I feel more comfortable in this conversation, because again, as I mentioned, people living with mental illness and their family members 
are often the victims, um, including from police violence when somebody's act acting erratic in the street and the police get called and they don't realize that this person is simply, you know, having a mental health breakdown mm -hmm. and they are killed in the process. So I'll stop there. Thanks. So no, much. not at all. There, That is exactly where I wanted to go because the stigma, they've, they're doubly stigmatized. Uh, there people think that that's where all of this gun violence is coming from. No, we uh, a 2022 study out of Columbia University Department of Psychiatry out of 300 mass shootings uh, that they took a look at. Um, and this is as as of July of 2022. So it's very recent. A tiny proportion were due to mental illness. In other words, people who had been diagnosed as having a mental aberration, uh, schizophrenia, that sort of thing, uh, which most human, uh, most of us look at and say, well, that's that's got to be the key. No, 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 that that doesn't happen. Their depression, depression. All right. Depression is a mental illness, but it's more likely to be something that is a non-diagnosed depression. And it's going to be depression generally among white males. That's the greater percentage. That's about 25%. So 25% are non-psychotic psych or, you know, just including depression and 23% with substance abuse. So the proportion of those who are, have, you know, they're, they're found to have been diagnosed with a mental illness is very, very, very small. So yes. Yeah. I was just going to add that when we do talk about depression, the risk for people who have mental health challenges, whether they're feeling suicidal, the risk of having a gun means that they put themselves at risk of, of dying from suicide. So yes, right. mental health go together, but that is through the path of, of suicide and, and self-harm that happens. And so we need to think about both guns and mass shootings, obviously the topic of today, but also how to prevent people who are deeply depressed from accessing a gun in order to protect them from, in a moment of deep despair, turning that gun on themselves. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> excuse me. I'd love to, love to chime in at this point. I think uh, from my perspective, uh, being a legislator, I would say that weak gun laws are probably the number one contributor to these uh, types of issues. And uh, proud to say that we live in Massachusetts which has the most strictest gun laws in the nation. That doesn't mean to say that we do not have gun violence in Massachusetts or that we'll never face a mass shooting. But uh, given the uh, registration requirements, given the training requirements, uh, given you know the red flag laws that we have in place, we have a, a number of uh, strictures in place to hopefully keep the guns out of the hands of irresponsible people. And uh, I did my training to carry a concealed weapon back in 2013. And I actually did the training with members of the Gun Owners Action League. And uh, I was impressed during my training that the instructor said, we do not believe that everyone should possess a weapon. And I remember saying to the instructor after that class, I said, that was a profound statement coming from, you know, a member of the Gun Owners Action League. So why don't you state those types of things publicly so that, uh, you know, people who uh, hear from you understand that even you as a uh, Second Amendment advocate would do not believe that everyone should possess a gun. 
And they said that would go a long way towards giving people a greater level of comfort. And, and what he meant by that is, he, I, I, he said, I do not believe that people who have not been trained and how to handle a weapon should not possess a weapon. People who are unstable should not possess a weapon. And, uh, you know, that's really the root of this problem is irresponsible people and guns being in the hands of people who should not possess them is the underlying issue. And if you look at these uh, mass shootings and you try to grasp what's going on, it's simply irresponsible people have no reason and no, uh, I don't want to say no right because everyone has a right, but uh, they just do not belong possessing a weapon that can kill. And uh, what what we have to do with our laws is to make sure that uh, the only people who have them are people who can responsibly possess them. I think that's a, that's a jumping off point. Uh, You know, the mental illness component, uh, in the legislature last year, we spent a great deal of time uh, dealing with mental health issues and, and passed a comprehensive mental health law uh, for Massachusetts. I think the most profound impact was that everyone under their health plan has a free mental health checkup on an annual basis. But when we passed that mental health bill, we were not passing it uh, as a gun control measure. In fact, guns did not even come up in that discussion. And to Natalia's point, the two are not linked uh, directly uh, on this on this matter. So uh, I, I'm glad that we are beginning this conversation uh, by trying to break uh, that notion that the only people who kill are mentally ill people. No, it's irresponsible people uh, who kill. Uh, I, I would add that there's probably um, an element of responsible people responsible for a lot of homicides in that most as tragic and as awful as mass shootings are, and I think it's the randomness of it that uh, horrifies us. Um, they're only a drop in the bucket of the number of deaths by gun violence in the country as a whole, and most of those are well domestic, as we've seen. Um, but uh, for the, I have to share that for the first time in my 25 years, uh, gun violence has struck a little closer to home for us. My wife had a school friend who was um, killed at work. A couple of weeks ago uh, by an aggrieved mm. former employee and you know it doesn't kind of doesn't matter like you know what the situation was um it's the, he was a nice chap and i'm sure the employee was a nice chap as well it's just something happened where um the uh the employee came back and for whatever reason took his life and then took his own mm. um and it's i don't know where to start with that um it's just a, a, a tragedy it seems that you know the perpetrator may have made uh, a rational choice it was just you know he may have passed every background test there was we don't know the facts in the case yet but and that uh, that brings up another point and that and chris i'm sorry to hear that um, that's that's awful but that brings up another point in that um, half of all mass shootings are associated with suicide by the perpetrator in other words they're whatever is in their mind has gotten to the point where they want to be dead and they have to take others with them or they are looking for the you know the what's called suicide by cop uh where they're looking for someone else to do it for them and a great number of them do indeed take their own lives instead of you know everyone thinks well that's you know kill before capture or something like that that was their ultimate aim was suicide 
So that's a big part of the question also is, and that, that can come up on, in, on people just out of nowhere. So it's the randomness and the fact that you cannot, can you really cannot reliably predict a mass shooting, when it's going to happen, who's going to do it and why. So looking to, you know, a, a psychiatric diagnosis is not the way to go. Doc Jones, Dr. Walker Jones, did you have anything uh, from the educational uh, standpoint of that? Because of the the large and, of course, disturbing number of mass shootings that have taken places taken place in schools the, uh, in this country. Now, what I want to touch on also is that mass shootings. I will not minimize the horror and the the you know the large number of them have taken place in this country, but they're not, uh, shall we say, the most effective way to do this. I mean, arson, bombing, vehicles, uh, even stabbing are two and a half times more deadly than gun mass murders. Now, so I don't think that, you know, we look at this and say, well, they're going to the gun because it's the most, the highest rate of efficacy. You can take out the most people. They are doing it. I think uh, the gun is there because it's a personal item. It's something you control. I mean, certainly you control arson. You can control when the bomb goes off. Stabbing is probably the the most personal aspect of uh, attack on another human being that you can do, as you're actually touching them at some point, obviously. So limiting the number of guns has got to be a major thrust, I think, cutting down on. If not, I don't think we'll ever eliminate this sort of thing. Um, it's It's just the way things happen. But how do we really limit the number of guns that are out there and now and, and understanding that if someone who is a criminal which is another ass that's a whole other piece of cake if someone is a criminal they're going to get they want a gun they're going to get a gun they don't go through the normal channels anyway but how do we limit the number of citizens out there who just have to walk into a store sign a, a waiver and they've got a gun and they can get as many as they want in most states how much of the onus of this is on the gun manufacturers? The, um, the interesting thing um, in Connecticut, let's talk about uh, the Newtown shooting and the young man who was able to get a weapon uh, through, I believe it was through his mother, and uh, clearly was not somebody trained uh, in how to handle a weapon and how to properly use it. But uh, the fascinating thing to me in, that ended up happening in that circumstance was uh, the notion that the families could uh, bring a civil action against uh, the gun manufacturers and uh, were successful in that effort. Um, I do recall during uh, the Bush era, the George W. Bush era, that uh, they provided immunity uh, for gun manufacturers and uh, the Connecticut case was a test of that particular uh, statute and uh, ended up taking away that immunity from the manufacturers in the context of that case. So that was a, a, a good move and I think uh, hopefully will lead to some more responsible action on behalf of manufacturers. But uh, we saw a clear example of total, totally irresponsible possession of weapons in that particular case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, argu 
one side of the argument by the manufacturers is we just make them. Who sells them? I mean, we we put them out there. We have a, a legal right to make them. We make them. They make them as good and as safe as we're required to. And some are a little more responsible and make them a little safer than they're required to. And it's not our fault that it gets out there. Now, when you flip that over, you say, well, if you're sending these, if you're manufacturing, and they do manufacture these little Saturday night specials, dangerous little poppers that have no reason to exist other than to be used in violence because uh, they're easily concealed. They're cheap. You can get them anywhere. And if they're sending hundreds and hundreds of these to a small number of dealers, there has to be some aspect where you look at that and you say, why are they buying all of these pieces of junk? Or is this a gas station that we're selling it to? There has to be, I think, on the dealers, there has to be an onus. The gun dealer, when they do this, uh, certainly they have a lot of paperwork they have to go through in some states. In others, they're the center for straw buyers. Someone takes a car, jumps into a car, drives down a little to another, the next state or a couple states down and buys up a large number of weapons and then brings them back into a state where they're not legal. So no, I, I look at this from the perspective, not only as a legislator, but as a, as a, as a trial attorney who did product liability litigation, um, there's a, uh, a duty on the behalf of manufacturers uh, to make sure that uh, their products are used safely. And uh, I can't think of a more dangerous um, product than a gun. And by putting the responsibility on the manufacturer to make sure that uh, these guns uh, don't get in the, into the hands of irresponsible users, I think is a, a good social policy for us to enact. Uh, because if the gun manufacturers were found responsible and were culpable for uh, producing dangerously defective products, I think what you would see is much more deliberate action on behalf of the manufacturers, making sure that these weapons do not get in the hands of people uh, who can't use them properly. Um, and, you know, uh, you look at the product and you, you know, juries are smart people and uh, they can, they can apportion liability and responsibility uh, correctly uh, based on the, the nature and uh, danger of the product. I mean, look at uh, cigarette litigation, how that changed the landscape from a public health context when, when cigarette manufacturers who knew all along that these were dangerous products and that they were causing people to get serious diseases and die, uh, once, once they were found culpable and uh, responsible for their actions, you saw a, a decline in the use of those dangerous products. And I think uh, my hope is that uh, as we impose more liability and responsibility on gun manufacturers, maybe we'll see a decline in the unreasonable use of these dangerous products. I really agree with you, Jeff, especially on the point about, you know, guns isn't one thing. There's like such a range of what a gun is, a gun that you can use for hunting, a gun that you can use if you're scared, you know, at home and you want to have to protect yourself from one person. But the guns that are used, the I don't even have the language for them. These like in mass shootings that can kill 
hundreds of people, like what is the point of those guns other than to cause mass harm? You know, maybe in the military, you need those guns, but in our cities, in our even in our rural communities. So I think the challenge here is when we use the term gun is that a gun is not a gun is not a gun, right? They are very, very different things. And for someone like me who has not been around guns much and, you know, by choice and would will stay that way, I don't even have the language, but I know that there are some that are much more deadly. And, and that is where manufacturers, that is where the company producing them and the lawmakers allowing for this to be, happen is culpable, where it's not about the individual. Because just like tobacco, just like other products, if we know that a product is deadly, we need to control that product. So I'm not saying get rid of all guns. I'm saying those guns that are causing mass harm um, should not be should not be available to civilians. You know, mm-hmm. I I personally don't. You know, I'm I'm more of a pacifist, so I don't even know. But I'm not going to the military. The military, you know, obviously needs its um, what they need. But I I agree with Jeff that looking at tobacco and looking at how we put the onus not on the individual but on the manufacturer um, is really important in this conversation. And I think another aspect we looked at there would be, and particularly when you talked about guns, you know, with uh, rapid fire and uh, multiple fire, we're talking then ancillary uh, manufacturers, those who make the the uh, so-called bump stocks, that sort of thing, where you can modify, and it is extremely easy to modify almost any automatic, semi-automatic weapon to become an automatic weapon, making it easier to do a sweep fire or whatever, you know. Uh, create what they call sidewalk sweepers, where basically you just hit one time, you just hold that trigger down and you just sweep across a sidewalk and everything in your path is is impacted. So yeah, there's the manufacturers on a couple of different levels, I think are should be held much more responsible for what's going on. But speaking of the military, Christopher, you've got a kind of a double aspect here. You're uh, coming from the, the United Kingdom where... Most of uh, the harm there is done with uh, sharp objects, sticks, pointed sticks, as uh, some uh, uh, something probably you're not uh, you can't uh, relate to that or young as you are. Sorry, they, <laughs> an old Monty Python a bit where they oh. talked about you know they were training, oh, learning yes. self defense, and the fellow <laughs> says, "What about pointed sticks?" Yep, sharp objects, but but also you uh, were in the military. So you have, uh, I think, uh, a viewpoint that you can bring to this that might be a little different. Uh, well, I, yes, it's very. There's very few uh, firearms uh, in the UK. There were a few when I was a kid, uh, but there's far fewer now. Uh, it's almost impossible to keep a firearm at home now. I think farmers can have shotguns and that kind of thing against uh, pests and for other you know needs of a farm, but. Um, that's about it. Everything else, if you do own one, has to be locked in a gun club. So there isn't any, I, there's not supposed to be uh, ones you can have at home. Um, I didn't touch one, yes, until my um, my first night, uh, drill night in the TA, which is like the National Guard. And they um, we were still in our civvies, our jeans and T-shirts. And they started handing out um, self-loading rifles. It's like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what are we going to do with this? Which is the, What's the dangerous end? Um, <laughs> well, that's an introduction, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, beautiful piece of machinery i can certainly admire the handiwork uh, and the effectiveness of it so it's uh, it, but the um the point that occurred to me specifically with regard to the uk is that you know i now know people especially young people in the uk who are uh, deterred from coming to the united states because they're afraid they'll get shot 
Um, so it's that's the kind of public image that can be seen by some people in, in around the world. So in the same way that we might hesitate about going to certain places in, say, Mexico or Brazil or Colombia, you know, we would think, oh, that's isn't that a dangerous place? Are we going to be putting ourselves at, at unnecessary risk if we go somewhere like that? Which is probably false. But like, you know, other parts of the world see the United States in in that way in, in some regard. So um, it's a you got to think, what's that doing to uh the kind of harm that that does to the tourist industry, for example, you know, it's just one of the biggest components of the economy. So you've got to think this isn't just about personal freedom or mental health. You know, it impacts the entire economy uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And then again, of course, you know, we can bring this back with uh, Dr. Michael Walker Jones um, with regard to school shootings, which we touched on only very briefly. Could you give us kind of a more in-depth idea of of what what we can do to protect our children in the schools uh, dr jones well well part of what i think is really necessary is to look at first the proliferation of guns the ease that some young people have to access a weapon in their home um, and then the need to make sure that those who do have weapons in their homes uh, have them secure and away from young people who may not necessarily know not only how to use them, but also may not know how lethal they are because they haven't either reached the level of maturity yet uh, to really comprehend uh, how destructive weapons are. I know that back in uh, back in the 80s and the 90s, when I was very active in the Brotherhood of Peace, we would go into high schools and do uh, not only workshops, but I would do uh, talks and assemblies with high school kids in particular. And one of the things that I would use is a video, uh, even though one of my partners uh, would try to do it live whenever he could, showing the destructive nature of just a, uh, a 22 on a watermelon. And uh, some of the kids were uh, absolutely surprised by that. But then we would also show, uh, and I'm sure that some of our uh, some of our states now uh, have relegated this to the scrap heap. They don't allow people like me to do these kinds of workshops anymore because we would also show real pictures, the aftermath of someone being hit with a bullet. And I know that there was one uh, one particular piece that I would use to show. Uh, it was a 10-year-old little boy who literally had a whole chunk of his upper arm gone after being hit with a nine millimeter and the real key to this story is that the bullet hit him after having gone through an external wall and an internal wall in other words the bullet was shot from outside went through the exterior of the house through those walls kept traveling and then went through the internal wall and i'm still to this day somewhat skeptical as to whether or not uh, I know some students told us that they were uh, that they were surprised that a you know that a weapon could do that kind of damage through that kind of penetration of two walls um, but again I don't think many of our folks have a real comprehensive understanding of the destructive nature and that's just the nine millimeter so you could imagine you take a weapon of mass destruction which ought to be outlawed. I agree with Natalia uh, and uh, and Chris that 
those weapons are not necessary in our society at all. They are intended to be military weapons. They are not intended to be mass distributed. And the idea, too, when you look at Michigan State recently, that someone from any place in the community can come and rain terror on uh, a student population, faculty. This is one of the few countries where that kind of that kind of event is becoming normalized. Um, and the question becomes, will our legislative members, and I applaud Massachusetts because we do, we have some of the strictest gun laws in the country. That doesn't mean, as Jeff said, that we don't have uh, shootings in our community. But ours are not at the level as some states, uh, but yet we still have them. And so I think it takes some real regulation. And I think as some of our prior guests have said, training and understanding of what having a weapon in your home or on your person uh, is all about. No, I think you're right. And that brings me to another point I'd like to discuss, and that is the gun culture. Uh, in this country, uh, the way that we have, uh, when I was a kid, every kid, every boy had a gun, a toy gun. That's how you were brought up. You had a toy gun. And when you got, uh, what your consider your parents considered to be a responsible age, <laughs> somewhere around 11, 12 years old, you know, I don't, I don't know how responsible any 11 year old is. You got a BB gun. And you were told not to shoot birds and you were told not to shoot it at anything but little targets. But invariably, you're out in the woods with your friends with your BB gun. And it's a matter of the mythology, the myth, uh, the myth, um, how we how we create a mythos around guns in this country. Uh, you're the sharpshooter, quick draw, the Wild West. How do we fight that? And then, of course, I I've had very little uh, um, exposure to them, but what little I've had of a lot of video games, you can buy weapons, you can earn weapons, win weapons of, you know, intense, you know, intense slaughter cap capability. How do we, how do we alter that? Um, I just, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. I don't have children, so I, I don't uh, get involved with that sort of thing. But what I've seen with other people's children is these kids for hours, sitting there on these wide-ranging, sometimes international, internationally linked games, blowing each other to bits. Well, let me jump in here real quick, because I just want to talk about my Fanner 45 that I owned when I was a little kid. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you guys remember the Fanner <laughs> Oh, 45. yeah. Oh, I remember it. Uh, it and then Lucas like McCain's a... rifle. Remember the yes. rifleman's rifle? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. right. It well, loaded see, and looked like mm -hmm. a real gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things we forget is how many children were shot because that gun was so realistic. As a matter of fact, I think they're outlawed now. You cannot make a gun. Uh, and the poor young man who was killed in Cleveland, uh, who was in the park playing with a toy gun. And when the police drove up, they thought that it was a real gun and they killed this little kid. So, again, our gun culture, I think you're right to put your finger on, we have a gun culture that in some instances put people at an uneasy state to where when they see something that looks like a gun, they react with deadly force. 
especially uh, with some of our police. Um, and it's understandable, as a matter of fact. Uh, so other than, again, making sure that we try to change that culture and how can you do it when you have, at this point, this proliferation of video games uh, and arcades that capitalize upon the fact that, yes, we can get you into an environment that makes you look real and you're carrying a weapon and you're destroying these things. But, hey, at the end of the uh, session, when all your lives are gone, put in another quarter and well, not, I'm sorry, another two dollars uh, and uh, uh, or restart the game and you're going again. Sorry for that quarter reference. I was going back to my youth. That's yeah, right. I remember the dime. That's a really good point. And, but then there's uh, the, there's so much of society glorifies violence. The strong man, the silent, grudge bearing person who's going to like you know bring justice to the bad people or whatever. It's just you just see it everywhere. Uh, in fact, we were listening to a podcast the other day, which are a real case of some um, poor chap in California who um, was a homeless person, um, had some mental and substance abuse issues, but saved uh, somebody who was was being attacked by attacking them with a hatchet. And um, everyone wanted to glorify this person, put him on TV, make him give him his own reality show. Um, you know, the Kardashians were after them to get them on their network. Or and um, and of course, with all the publicity, cops across the country realized this was the guy who had murdered someone with a hatchet in their state and were able to connect him. But there was that moment where the uh, instinct. Uh, society's instinct was to glorify this person, put them on a pedestal for for violent intervention in a in a crime. So there's there's that whole thing, and I think Dr. Mike makes an excellent point about the visual preparation for it. I've never driven without a seatbelt after watching a TV uh, set of ads in the 1970s when I was growing up of some actual victims of um, car crashes who had not had their seatbelts on. It's like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. I never gonna want that to happen. And it's the you know, probably the, the single best thing I've ever done to protect my personal safety. Um, and then again, the Hollywood portrayals, you know, of someone gets shot, they go, oh, and they fall down. And there's a little splash and one of the things i saw uh working in afghanistan was just um mm -hmm. the actual effects of uh violence are just so unbelievable uh if hollywood would portray you know just one of those thousands of murders they show every year realistically um like in the in the army when you you mentioned my military days my military rifle uh would um go through the slr 7.62 would go through uh, 18 inches of brick. So we're talking three brick walls um, and then uh, would leave an exit wound. You know, entry wound would be the nice little puncture wound you might see in Hollywood. Um, but they never show you the exit wound, which we, you know, with that caliber weapon yes. would be six to nine inches. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I think you show a couple of those on TV and mm -hmm. I think um, you'd get uh, uh, an interesting reaction. Yeah. Well, but they, but we do have those images on TV, Chris. <laughs> just, just look at any of the uh, uh, of some of the movies coming out of Hollywood, and you see people being blown to bits. I recall uh, the uh, the horror of the Steven Spielberg film, the one where uh, Saving Private Ryan, for example. Remember the scene? Yeah, uh, when very unsettling. Yeah, when they're storming Normandy. I mean, it doesn't get much real, much more real than that, man. 
And so uh, I, I give you credit. Be, There's there is some, uh, but I'm just thinking like more of the like the standard fare of um, of uh, things. Well, they like the I think this procedural is a great segue. Sort of I think this is a great segue into the responsibility not only our, our our media but also our politicians to play down that image or revenge or of of lashing out which brings me to marjorie taylor green and her thank you michael for what i can only say is the next generation of successionists with no clear understanding of how her words are impacting not just people who are on the margin, but normal people who in some ways say, well, she's a politician. She ought to know what's going on. And she's saying we're on the brink of civil war, even though she says nobody wants to go there, but she says it's going to happen. And so well, why not? Let's go ahead and separate into red states and blue states right now with, again, a, a total lack of understanding of what her words mean what they mean and what they entail, what will happen. I mean, one glaring point is distribution of wealth in these two, in this, during this divorce, always a, a point with regular divorce. The wealth is vastly greater in the blue states. The red states, generally, you've got Mississippi, you've got the, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a very blase way of looking at it, but the distribution of wealth would be <laughs> rather devastating for the blue states. And I think um, history teaches us that any attempt to divide the union uh, is not one that's going to just happen peacefully where no. where the money is the, the primary concern. It's mm -hmm. going to be uh, the uh, the violence that mm -hmm. would inevitably accompany that. And, you know, having seen a civil war uh, up close and personal, even if only briefly, it it's not that you cannot convey the sense of fear and anxiety that's with you all the time that you know death could come out of the nowhere at any moment and uh for either from a landmine or a sniper or a robber or a rapist uh that you know and it's the criminal element that is unleashed when when law and order breaks down that's mm -hmm. the most terrifying and does the most harm you know they may put on a badge of one party or another just to try and avoid responsibility for their actions but it's just the unspeakable horror that would be unleashed by launching a a civil war or even just advocating one it just it's just criminal it's like the, uh, it just makes me mad sorry there's just no other way to describe it but again let's discuss too the idea that she's doing this on false pretenses mm -hmm. it's not just the aftermath it's the sort of build up to this and it's it's totally irresponsible on the part of a politician to make up lives to incite people in order to raise money to your campaign or to help bring people to your side when you don't really are, you're not putting out any idea. She says this, but she has no concept of the economic issues of the divorce, what we're discussing here in a rational sense. Well, if the red states separate, what do they do? Since they're taker states, they take more from the federal government than they send. And I recall living in Louisiana when we looked at various tax structures. Louisiana could be, when it comes to taxes, one of the more well-to-do states mm -hmm. in the nation. If all they did was tax the transmission 
of the fluids going through their pipeline. And it was something to the tune of about 16 to uh, anywhere between 16, depending on the uh, taxing scheme, to $23 billion a year. And their budget was only $8 billion a year. Thank you, Huey Long. So the lies that are being put out here, leading people to be insightful, I think that's really the abomination. Your thoughts? I think you're right. She's stirring up uh, something that she has no control over, has no ability to control it, and certainly doesn't have the uh, the political clout to control it. Isn't she um, violating the uh, 14th Amendment, the insurrection clause, uh, which which was put in place after the Civil War? And one would think that uh, somebody who claims to be an adherent of the Constitution would understand that the conduct that she is uh, attempting to uh, initiate is actually a serious violation of the Constitution and could constitute grounds for barring her from ever seeking elected office. Um, I know that somebody attempted to prevent her from getting on the ballot in the last election cycle based on the previous insurrection mm-hmm. and her conduct uh, they were unsuccessful uh, but uh, you know the more she goes down this road uh, i think the more seriously we ought to take that and uh, hold her culpable uh, for her actions it's it's outrageous that anyone would think that civil war is or or uh, uh, the division of the union is the way to go I mean, just read the Gettysburg Address and uh, you know, see the suffering that went to restore the Union to what it is. We've been through some bad times together as a nation, but we've always been able to overcome it. And there's no reason why we can't do that at this juncture. But what we need is we need leaders who will move us in that direction instead of pushing us in the opposite direction. And what we need are leaders who will stand up and confront her. And, and I think you need that leadership from her own party. You need uh, folks like uh, McCarthy and McConnell, who are the uh, so-called leaders of their particular, particular branches and parties, ought to be calling out this bad behavior and ought to be standing up for the union and standing up for the nation uh, and and not for some political gamesmanship, which uh, she's obviously trying to do. Her her behavior during the uh, State of the Union address was abhorrent. I can't believe they won't attempt to censure her for that outrageous conduct. And by not taking action against her, they're just encouraging her to do it more and more and more. And uh, it's just going to unravel and uh, it'll get ugly before uh, we restore order. Right. And it, with regard to McCarthy, I mean, he has publicly stated he will never abandon her. He will never go against her because he, uh, I assume, feels that um, she basically de- eased him into the the speaker, the seat of the speaker of the House with whatever few pieces of 
how yes. to put this. Her and the rest of the, I think they call themselves the Freedom Caucus. There we go. Um, All right, we'll call we'll call them the Freedom Caucus. Uh, I'd like to call them something else, but we'll call them the Freedom Caucus. I think we all would. I don't think there's any yeah. doubt on that one. But yeah, that he feels that that's his power base, and he's not going to abandon her until she loses her power base. Before she lose that power base, he he wouldn't know who she was. He wouldn't recognize her if he fell over her or she attacked him. So. Well, with that, that white coat, she's very difficult not to be able to uh, to see. I think one of the critical mistakes in him ascending to the speakership was, uh, you know, allowing one member to call for a vote uh, for the Speaker of the House. I mean, come on. I mean, talk about a lame duck speaker. And uh, I never saw somebody look weaker uh, than when I was watching him during the State of the Union address and the chaos was erupting throughout the room and the guy could, couldn't could do a damn thing about it. And that's such a shame because yeah. what a lapse, lapse in judgment and lapse in leadership. And shameful that uh, we're going to have to go through this for the next two years. Well, we do have that to look forward to, two years. Um, can we survive that and the upcoming 2024 uh, so we've got uh, a lot of fish to fry in the next two years. And I feel a lot of it's going to be centered around chaos and disorder that's going to be used to serve the purpose of some of those who are going to be the biggest names in 2024. Well, another more perfect union hour has flown by, and we will say goodbye until next week. Now, if you'd like to weigh in on our discussions, as always, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. Or if you disagree, as always, all the more reason to let us know. Now, you can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website, WFPR.FM. And today for our guests, Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker Jones, and our representative, Jeff Roy. I'm Nick Remesong, along with my co host, Chris Wolf. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.